If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. We're going to skip ahead to verse 27. So the, uh, the next section of Luke's Gospel that we would have been on today, I preached that back in August. It was the calling of the first disciples and the miraculous catch of fish. So I decided instead of preaching that again, we're going to skip ahead to the calling of Levi in today's passage, or uh, a.k.a. Matthew, the tax collector. He goes by both names in the New Testament. Levi was a toll booth tax collector. So just as today, you may have to pay a toll to cross a border or to use a roadway, Well, back then, you would have to pay a toll to pass from one kingdom to another. Uh, It might be a road tax. It could be an import tax or an export tax. They'd ask you how many packages you were carrying or how many turnips were in your wagon. Uh, They would count the number of legs on your donkey and tax those. (laughs) You you name it, they would tax it. As as I said, Levi's a toll booth tax collector which would have meant that he meant he was a wealthy man, but he was not wealthy on the order of, say, an, another famous tax collector in the Bible, Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and whose responsibilities were largely personal income taxes. Uh, the prices at toll booths were fairly standardized. There was less opportunity for markup, therefore less potential for profit. Um, that being said... Levi worked for Herod Antipas, the first century ruler of Galilee. He was a Jewish ruler. He was also a puppet regime of the Roman government. Therefore, Levi worked for the Romans, of course. He was a collaborator with the enemy. He was a true scallywag. (laughs) Love that word. And he he was was despised and hated by the people, of course. Um, You know, most Galileans could tell you about the good old days when the roads were free and when there were no taxes, but you know, now we have to pay taxes to this low-life sellout scum that is sitting by the roadside. And you can imagine just the scorn and the vitriol as they tossed their coins at Levi. But one day, a man came by who didn't curse or sneer or grumble but who simply said, come follow me. And Levi found himself to be irresistibly drawn to this man. 527. After this, Jesus went, to, went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him left everything and followed him. I mean, if you think about it, so the, very, the previous passage was the calling of the fishermen to follow Jesus. Well, if things didn't work out for you and you left your fisherman job, you could always go back to that. But if you leave your tax collector job, you're not going back to that one. It was gone for good. And this is a decisive break with his past. Um, in verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the old will not match the old. I'm sorry, the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. We've all discovered this phenomenon in our lives where you have two people who are so alike, they're so similar, that they fight like cats and dogs. You step back and think about that for a moment. It seems a little counterintuitive because you would, you sort of imagine similarities ought to equal harmony. But in fact, similarities can lead to very sharp disagreements for two people or two groups of people when they are trying to differentiate themselves from one another. I say this because you may not realize it, but Jesus and the Pharisees were far more alike than they were different. Josephus, you may have heard that name before, very famous first century historian, a man who wrote extensively in, the, uh, you know, in these times. We think he's a very reliable source in most of his reporting, and he tells us in his writings a fair bit about what the Pharisees were like. Josephus says that the Pharisees were the most influential sect in Judaism in their day, and the one most defining characteristic of the Pharisees is that they were utterly devoted to Torah. Their primary aim was to accurately interpret the Torah and live life as closely as possible according to the 615 laws that are found in Torah. I mean, who can keep track of all 615 laws? Uh, Very difficult for your average guy, right? So the, the, the Pharisees were kind of like popularizers of Torah. They tried to take Torah and make it practicable by all of your regular Jewish people, not just for the experts, not just for the priests, but for everybody, so that everybody could fulfill it. I mean, Jesus loved Torah, didn't he? Of course he loved Torah. He wrote Torah. And he was very interested in having people follow Torah. Um, You know, now today, one of the most insulting and pejorative terms you can call someone by is to say, you're a Pharisee. But they they were not bad people in the sense uh, that we use that phrase today. They didn't refuse to help little old ladies cross the street. You know, they didn't twirl their mustaches as they foreclosed on, you know, the loans for the poor. Uh, these were principled, very serious about their religion, very much in love with their Bible. They were the conservative A-team. <laughs> Who, at the end of the day, got it all cataclysmically wrong. The Pharisees are, are, are a warning to us because like, if they lived today, they could easily be conservative Presbyterians. 
they are warning to us uh, to, to hold, to just be humble in the way that we read our Bibles and, and do our theology. Because but for the grace of God, go I, go we. They got it all cataclysmically wrong because Torah was written to point to Jesus Christ. And they didn't see that. So here you are in Luke chapter 5. We find two areas that they criticize Jesus over. And, and as I was looking at the passage, I think the best way to preach it, to preach the sermon, is to simply focus on these two areas of disagreement and consider their kind of contemporary applications of these. So what are they? The disagreements are, number one, Jesus and meals. Number two, Jesus and fasting. And we'll conclude with number three, Jesus and calling. So meals, fasting, and calling for those of you who are taking notes. If you go to the Middle East today, uh, then as, as, it was, um, as it was then, so it is now, meals served a crucial social function. You probably know this, but I'll just reiterate it. To invite a man to sit at the table with you and share a meal with you was an offer of peace, of shalom. It was an expression of brotherhood, an expression of trust. Uh, it was even kind of... Uh, demonstrated by the leisurely way that they would dine. So if you've ever seen the, the first century um, dining room, uh, it would look like they would set up several series of couches in a U-shape. And then on the inside of the U, there would be a low table. And I say couches, really low couches that you could lay in on and prop yourself up on. Um, I mean, they, they didn't sit in hard, upright plastic chairs or wooden chairs. I mean, the whole meal environment was designed so that you could sit there and eat for a very long time together and be comfortable. I mean, you're, you're literally, should I do it? I mean, you're literally like, you're, you're propped up on one arm like that with your legs extending back from the table towards the wall. And, and you could do that and we're expected to do that for hours. It was very leisurely. It, it allowed for um, great conversation to really get to know the people that are sitting around your table. Um, it was kind of intimate because all of your heads are kind of near to each other in the shape of this U, if you can get the image. And in all of these meals, you would have the host in the center and the honored guest on his right. And so Jesus Christ, in all the meals of the Bible, in this case and in others, he's the honored guest at these tax collector meals. Somebody has made a very provocative statement about Jesus and the way he ate. They said Jesus got, him, got himself killed by the way he ate his meals or by the people he ate his meals with. And that might be a little bit strong, but it just goes to, to try to illustrate it's very hard for us to appreciate just how culturally important a shared table and shared table fellowship was for these people. It was huge. And the Pharisees believed that you must not have table fellowship with certain categories of people, with people who disregarded the law of Moses, people who, um, who were impure. It, isn't sharing a meal with people like that just going to give tacit approval for their sinful lifestyle? And doesn't it encourage them to continue further in their sin? And doesn't their sin somehow rub off on you or at the very least rub off on your reputation? And doesn't the Bible... Talk about these things. The Pharisees had plenty of Bible verses to support this position. 
Think of all of the passages that talk about how Israel was required to expel the wicked from her her midst, from her assembly. Or the Proverbs, bad company corrupts good character, right? Or, you know, have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, etc., etc., etc. They had plenty of good Bible verses to back them up. No doubt the Pharisees also thought... um, that it was not only a direct violation of God's word, it was also an inhibition, uh, not an inhibition, a stumbling block that would keep God from blessing our people today. I mean, if we want God to get rid of the Romans and rid our country of these Roman occupiers, what do we need to do? We need to go back to the Bible and be pure and be blameless and be a people who's ready to be blessed by God. No doubt they thought that Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners threatened to corrupt the morals of their Jewish society and put at risk the prospects of God's blessing. Does that make sense? So they had lots of good reasons. And if I were to summarize it this way, uh, it would simply be They believed that in order for God to restore Israel, sharp lines had to be drawn between the pure and the impure, between the clean and the unclean, between the sinner and the godly, between us and them. In my high school in Mesa, Arizona, Back in the early 90s, there was a courtyard just outside of the main main building, just to the southeast, a courtyard with a covered patio and tables, and then I think there were lockers around the outside of it as well. Um, That's where the jocks and the popular people hung out. It was jock patio. Further south, in the very southerly end of campus, you could find the tennis courts, This was the uh, place that was most removed from the main building, and therefore it was the best place to smoke back in the early 90s. Can you believe it? Yeah, you were still allowed to smoke on campus. And that is where the stoners and the Metallica shirt people would hang out down south on the tennis courts. Then on the west side of campus, that, that was my crew, the performing arts and music, drama, speech and debate geeks, you know. You look at these groups, I mean, they all on the outside, they look very different. They talk differently. They have different interests. I mean, jocks don't look like Metallica people who don't look like the debate team. None of us would travel from the music room to the tennis courts or the tennis courts to the patio because we know that we wouldn't be welcomed there. But there was an even deeper reason why wouldn't, we wouldn't make that, uh, that journey. We knew that we wouldn't be caught dead around those people. Because there was a, a mutual scorn, just a, a shared contempt for the others. Anybody have a high school experience like that? Yeah. We see in Jesus Christ a man who scorns the scorn, who scorns the contempt the contemptuous social boundary markers that categorized his society. What is so wonderful about Jesus Christ is I really believe he would eat a meal with anybody. He would offer friendship and peace and pursue anybody. He was never afraid of guilt by association. You get that? He was never afraid of guilt by association. He was never afraid of 
what it would mean if he was caught having a meal with those people and what, what would that mean for your reputation? He's like, I don't care about my reputation. I know that the Torah points to me and I am the great physician who has come to heal people of their spiritual sickness. So wherever people are spiritually sick, that's where I will go and dine. Isn't that beautiful? It really is. Isn't that so contrary to the United States of America today? Right? It almost feels like America is just one giant high school class. And Washington, D.C. is just straight, straight up high school. Like high school tragedy. Um, high school comedy. You know, We're so deeply polarized. This we can agree on. We can at least agree that we're so deeply polarized. And we hold others in such utter contempt that... that we, we can agree that we hold each other contemptuous, right? That, my friends, that, that must have no place in Christ's church. None. Absolutely none. None whatsoever. I could do cartwheels up here to just emphasize how much that has no place in Jesus' home. Like Jesus Christ is displeased when we think contemptuously about any other human being on this earth. As Joe already said, you, you, you will not find anything more holy, aside perhaps from the sacrament, than the human being that is sitting right next to you. Jesus Christ is displeased when we categorize the world into good people and bad people and, and this people and that people. There's only one kind of person in the world, according to Jesus. There are sick people. People who know themselves to be sick and people who are yet oblivious to it. When Jesus Christ came into the world, it was to go and share meals with all people, to develop close relational bonds of peace and brotherhood with sick people. And in so doing, that was his method for restoring Israel. Like he came as a physician for a meal, not as a policeman trying to police the boundaries. So that stuff out in the world today, in America, the way the world works, the contempt the world has for each other, the whole MSNBC, Fox News, we must never, ever, 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 ever allow that into the church because that's not the way of Christ. You know, and it's funny because this theme comes back up again and again in the New Testament. Paul and the other early church leaders were trying to get early Christians who should hate each other because they were either Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, trying to get the people who should hate each other the most, try to get them to eat a meal together. <laughs> try to get them to disavow the social boundary markers and the contemptuous boundary markers that were prevalent in the world of their day. Um, I love how a church in Portland summarizes just the power of a shared meal. They do it this way. They said, quote, The history of the church is around the table, the sacramental table, and then millions of other tables for the rest of the week. That is where the church is supposed to live her life out. Funny, because the table is a very ordinary place. It is so routine and everyday. It is easily overlooked as a place of life-changing community. By setting a table and sharing a meal, we provide the context for which people feel loved, where people feel heard, a place where God's spirit can move. 
The practice of eating and drinking is central to the kingdom of God. Jesus ate with the lost. He ate with community. And the gospel spread from table to table, from one to the next, from one home to another, all over a meal. Um, A friend of mine gave me a book to read. It's entitled Anatomy of the Soul. I'm only eh, 20% into the book. And so I'm not endorsing the book. I haven't finished the book. But it's written by a Christian neuroscientist, uh, psychiatrist, neuroscientist um, dude. And (laughs) what he, um, he talks about at the very beginning is just how much, what being known by another human being, knowing and being known, what that does to your neuro, your neurochemistry and, um, and your brain. It, 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 unpa- it un- unlocks things. Like neurons start firing that weren't firing. Um, to be vulnerable with another person and to, to be known by another person and to know another person around a table. That's what Jesus was doing. See, meals are more than nourishment. Meals bring people together deeply. Through a shared experience, we can come to see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as friends and ultimately strangers as family, as family in in the kingdom and in the family of God. So yes, friends, we have a great evangelism program given to us in the Bible. Open your home and share a meal with someone who's not like you. And thoroughly resist and repent of any contemptuous scorn we have towards others, whoever the others may be. Amen? So that's Jesus and meals. Secondly, the second area of a disagreement they had was with fasting. And as far as I can tell, there was only one prescribed fast for all of the people in Israel that they were required to celebrate annually. Anybody remember what it was? Only one day in 365, you had to fast. And that was on the day of Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement. Um, So you only had to do it once. Well, the Pharisees, they came along and they adopted a rigorous pattern of fasting twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday, according to the Pharisees, was a fast day. Now, why would they do that? Why twice a week fasting? If we give them the benefit of the doubt, which I think we should... We can guess why. Why do you fast? You fast sometimes as an expression of mourning. You know, Israel was a mess. The priesthood was corrupt. They were still occupied by the Romans. You fast twice a week as a sign of sorrow about these situations. And just a way of asking God to please do something soon. It, rescue us. Again, can you see how these are not bad guys? This, is, this could be a very good idea. Uh, and Jesus, I think it's safe to say, didn't, he wasn't against fasting. You know, he had just fasted for 40 days earlier in the Gospel of Luke. We can assume that Jesus fasted at times and his disciples fasted at times. But his answer to them in verse 34 is very simple. When they say, why aren't you, your disciples fasting? He says, well, it's not the time to fast. It's not the time to fast. It's the time to feast. (laughs) It's not the time to fast. It's the time to feast. Apparently in that day, they would use the skin of a young goat uh, for the, to make the pouch of wine, um, 
Goatskin is, and I know nothing about goatskin, but uh, as I read, goatskin is a very elastic pouch. You take your grape juice, you place it inside the liquid of ferment, and the fermentation process would create a gas that would cause the skin to expand. If you were to take an older wineskin, which has become brittle with time, that wineskin's going to lack the elasticity, and therefore it can't handle the expansion of the gas. You can't put new new fermenting wine into old wineskins because the old cannot contain the new. Jesus says, the old can't contain the new. The Torah points to me. Verse 34, I am the royal bridegroom that is prophesied in the Old Testament. And I have come to throw a royal wedding feast. These are not times of mourning, but of celebration. And therefore, My disciples, they must not fast. They cannot fast. Not when the bridegroom is here. But they will fast when I die. He does say that. But not now. The time now is uh, really, okay, I'll put it this way. Everything depends on the time now. On on reading the time now right. And there's a parable in there for a lot of life. Um, I've used the illustration before. Uh, if you're learning how to play the game of golf, I, I feel pity for the Pharisees because they remind me of a man who's l- learning to play the game of golf for the first time. When you step onto the first tee, there are so many things you've got to remember. You know, you've got to get your grip right. You've got to keep that left arm straight. You've got to tuck the right arm in. You have to address the ball pr- properly. You have to keep your head down. You have to you know, get the good rotation when you take, take back the club. There are, there are about 20 different things that you have to do in order to hit the golf ball. Well, imagine two guys that are standing on the first tee. The first guy looks like he's dressed right off of the PGA Tour. He has the visor, Titleist. He's got you know, the really nice uh, polo shirt. He's fashionable. Um, but he's so consumed with doing each step correctly that he ends up, when he swings, you know, duffing the ball 20 yards into the water hazard onto the right, and you know, he, he just can't execute. Um, the next guy, his shirt is untucked. He has a grungy hat on. His hat's on backwards. He has the most gangly swing in the world. It's so ugly, so out of whack. But at the moment of impact, it just so happens that club face hits flush with the ball. And it doesn't matter really anything you do up until that point. As long as the club face hits the ball right, it flies. And the gangly guy sends it flying. Same thing in the game of baseball. My favorite sport. Can't wait for opening day in and, and just over a month. It doesn't matter what you look like in the batter's box. I mean, you could do anything in the batter's box. All that matters is can you put the bat on the ball when it's in the strike zone? Try as hard as they might. The Pharisees could not. But tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, all of those gangly looking people, they could. Why? Because when the bridegroom came, they ate and drank with him and they celebrated him. There is a parable there. I, <laughs> I'll let you think through what, what it all means. Jesus tells a parable. He says the new wineskin, uh, there's a new era with new ways which are not compatible with the old categories and ways of contemporary Judaism. Um, and that's what he was bringing. You know, I wonder if 
we see a similar pattern in church history. If about every 300 or so years, God brings new wine into the church, which cannot be put into the old wineskins. I mean, we know that happened with Paul. Paul's mission to the Gentiles, that was definitely, that was new wine. Um, The conversion of Constantine in the fourth century, that profoundly reshaped the church. That seemed like it was new wine, although that's debatable. Uh, The Reformation in the 17th century, 16th century, that was new wine that burst open the old wineskins of medieval Catholicism. And even in the 20th century, the explosion of the church as she's grown to Africa and the third world and China, uh, especially over the last two centuries, is probably new wine. The danger is that everybody who has a new theological project that comes along today claims what? They claim that their new theological project is new wine. <laughs> so Amy Simple McPherson in Pentecostalism in uh, the Azusa Street Revival, that was new wine. And uh, one of the uh, popular things today is a home church movement. You, you can do church on your couch with your internet and that's new wine. Uh, the, the one that's most vocal today is, you know, all of the LGBTQ plus churches claim that they are the new wineskin for the new wine. Um, I, I profoundly disagree with them on that. I find it shady when somebody self-proclaims that they are the new wine, <laughs> when they are the new wineskin. Like when you use that to designate your group with God's stamp of approval on what you are doing, I, I find that claim dubious uh, and a bit arrogant, really. Well, I think wineskins are best recognized retrospectively, looking backwards, uh, not when prophets and um, pundits are making their pronouncements in the present. So I'm no prophet, and I might even tell, tell you or try to tell you what the next wineskin will be. I just know that we have to stay alert and receptive to Jesus Christ. Now, that's what we need to do every day. Alert and receptive and yielded to him. Um, and, you know, maybe he wants to put your life into a new wineskin and bring new wine into you and change the way that you, you know him and relate to him. You have to, it, it all comes down to can you, can you really um, interpret the now? <laughs> can you interpret Christ and, and understand the now? What is the now? Which leads me to the final point, third and final point, Jesus and calling. Over the years, I've noticed there's a kind of person when you take them out to, to eat, you can never be sure if they'll finish the meal with you. In the old days, they would get paged and they'd have to run and find a phone. Nowadays, they pull out their cell phone and suddenly say, I have to go to the hospital or I have to go to the clinic. Who are these poor people who don't have control over their lives? We have quite a few of them at All Saints. They are people who are on call. (laughs) If you are on call, you don't have control over your schedule or over your time. If you are on call... You cannot just do whatever you want to do. If, if you're not on call, then go ahead, do whatever. But if you are on call, then you are subject to somebody else's priorities, aren't you? One of the most loved passages of the Bible is the great Romans 8.28. Remember it? 
All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And usually when we talk about that verse, we always look at the first part. You know, God's going to work good for all of these terrible things in your life. He's going to work for the good. But I'd like you to consider the second part of that verse. For those who love God and are called according to your purposes, all those who love God are called. Every Christian is someone who's called. And to be called means that you're no longer in control. Do you feel a sense of call? Um, When you start to find a sense growing on you or in you that Jesus has to be the most important thing in your life, And his relationship with you has to be the ultimate thing of your life. And everything else, and this is the key to call, everything else must take a back seat. When you you begin to feel that way, uh, like you have the pager and it's constantly going off and ringing, that's the call. It always brings with it a new priority. So in conclusion... uh, I don't know how polite you are when somebody calls your house a telemarketer who is uh, trying to sell you something. Do you even have the conversation? And it's a scripted conversation. Do you try to be kind to them? Um, Do you hang up on them immediately? Well, I can tell you that a tax collector was far more despised than all the telemarketers in our world. Uh, And this little despised outcast man, as he sat at his tax booth day in after day in, day out. It must have been discouraging being hated by absolutely everyone until a hand was placed on his shoulder and a voice said, let's go. (laughs) Let's go. Let's go. Do you feel that? I mean, God is the great evangelist. He is the one who sent his son into the world to seek and save the lost to have meals with the sick. We know the doctor. The doctor has just placed his hand on your shoulder. He said, let's go. So put those sandals on, walk across the office, invite the guy with a totally rancid mouth and terrible language, invite that guy to dinner, invite the obnoxious person to dinner. You're called. You're called, church. Let's go. Amen.